Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 167. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm going to go into a little bit more depth about a recent episode. In episode 165, a couple weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Gretchen Schmelzer, who has helped individuals and organizations address the process of healing from experiences of relational trauma. She's the author of the book, Journey Through Trauma, a trail guide to the five-phase cycle of healing repeated trauma. I loved our conversation and how she explained why she came up with a five-phase model building on the classic three-phase or three-stage model that Judith Herman offered um, in her book, Trauma and Recovery, which came out in 1992. And this is considered to be the standard approach for trauma therapy, which I absolutely agree with that it's the way that I model my work too. But I love what Gretchen is saying about kind of for the therapist and the client, it's important for people to understand what that really looks like in therapy. And it's a lot more complex than it seems. So uh, I wanted to go into that. I'm going to share a couple clips from that episode and also some questions from fellow therapists about this topic. So if you've been listening to Therapy Chat for any length of time, you know that I'm a trauma therapist and I work long term with people who've experienced relational traumas, most often things that happened in childhood or as they say about attachment, sometimes what didn't happen. Uh, needs that weren't met that impact us throughout our lives. Those are relational traumas and those experiences um, can, can be felt as traumatic. It's not the shock trauma, but it's what we call developmental trauma. And both are impactful over the lifespan. 
So Gretchen has worked with people internationally who've experienced the trauma of war and genocide. And she talked about how she worked with people in Cambodia following the horrible, the horrible civil war there, which was profoundly painful for the people of Cambodia. So here's a clip in which she talks about how she worked with people there who had just escaped a war. Wow. Yeah. So that's really, I mean, just even hearing about that, that's so powerful. Thinking about trying to teach people emotional intelligence who've just literally just like escaped this horrific extended period of trauma. The biggest thing is, I mean, I think it's true for all trauma that you don't go right at it. <laughs> you know, I think, mm-hmm. I think we're a very action oriented culture, right? So if people want to lose weight, you just go on this diet and you, there, we have this idea that you can just fix things with a protocol and Oh, I love you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. I love what you're saying. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, in Cambodia, I will say that it wasn't a trauma intervention. I mean, we were teaching emotional intelligence, but it was the lightest, in some ways, the lightest, loveliest form of helping people understand self-awareness, helping them understand the impact of stress, helping them understand how to think about how other people feel, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in a country that had just come through war, they were, and a specific kind of war in the sense that the social, it was really the social fabric that got destroyed. I mean, people got very hurt and many died, but there were, they were sort of taught to, to tell on each other, to trust each other, trust each other. Exactly. And so, you know, we had them working in small groups and just the act of having to practice some trust in each other and to work together on different tasks had them doing what they hadn't experienced in a long time, right? So that that was heal, very healing, even if we never said the word trauma out loud. There's a lot of healing that can happen without saying the word trauma out loud. <laughs> so my microphone just stopped working and I really wanted to get this episode out to you. So I'm just going to go on without it, but I know this doesn't sound as good as it did when I was recording just a few minutes ago. Very annoying that I can't figure out what's wrong. But anywho, so one of the things I wanted to bring to your attention about what Gretchen said there is that she's saying that they were working with people who had just gotten out of the dangerous environment of the war where all these horrible things happened. People died. And for those who were living... Neighbors were turned against neighbors. No one knew who they could trust. And that was a real destruction of the social fabric, which is connection and relationship. If you can't trust anyone, how can you feel safe? Because as humans, we are literally wired for connection. We're made to be in relationship with other people. That is how we survive as humans. So, One important aspect of what she said is that they were away from the situation. So they're no longer in danger. However, when you're 
When you've just survived a life-threatening experience, being away from the danger so it is not currently happening means that, yes, you're safe and you can begin to recover, but basically when you're in a life-threatening situation, your brain is in survival mode and it's completely responding to instinct and doing whatever you have to do to live through that experience. Once you are no longer in the life-threatening situation, that is when we start to see trauma symptoms because now the person is away from the situation. But the tricky thing is that your brain doesn't know that it's not happening. Your brain is still on the lookout for danger and it's reminding you, this terrible thing just happened. Look out for danger everywhere. Nowhere is safe. And so this is true whether we're talking about war, child abuse, rape, a car accident, being violently attacked, domestic violence, any situation where your brain perceives that your life is threatened. And when, just to add to that, when people have had previous traumatic experiences and then they have another one, all those other previous traumatic experiences are also brought into the response to what's happening. So Yes, the person is physically safe by being out of the current imminent life threat, but the brain responds as if the danger is still there. And what this means is when the trauma gets activated, anytime it feels like there's a threat, the brain believes that what happened before is actually happening now. Your brain doesn't have the concept of time to know That's not now, that was before. When this instinctive response is happening, it's the same, which is why people have experiences of reliving the traumatic experience. So if you think about what would be a life threat, like in the example that Gretchen gave, where the social fabric was destroyed, neighbors were turning on neighbors and no one knew who was safe to trust, then being in relationship does not feel like a safe place. It feels like a threat because if you couldn't trust your neighbors because they might turn you into the secret police, then to be in relationship with anyone, your brain thinks, your trauma response says, is a life threat. So using the example that many people have not experienced of war, but one that relates to any type of relational trauma, any trauma where a person harms another person. Using such an example, we can understand that safety is not always what it seems. So, you know, for example, if you were a therapist and you were working with a client who has a previous abusive relationship, but they have left, let's say, a domestic violence relationship and they are no longer in relationship with that abusive partner, in your mind, you say, may say, well, yeah, now they're safe. They're no longer in that relationship. But what if they're in a current relationship with someone else, which while not being physically abusive, may be triggering to them and they feel as if they're being abused in that situation or when their trauma gets triggered, the feelings that come up for them are the same as if it were happening now what happened in the past. So We as therapists really need to have a deeper, more accurate concept of what safety is. 
physical safety is one thing. Are you safe? Well, am I in a burning building? Is there anyone around me with a weapon or someone who's trying to hurt me? No. But does that mean that I feel emotionally safe? No, it doesn't. Let's say my trauma got triggered in some way and I'm sitting here by myself in a safe house in a safe neighborhood with very low crime and no one's even here. So no one's going to harm me. But if being alone triggers my trauma symptoms because of my past experiences, I might not feel emotionally safe right now. So for one, we as therapists have to have an accurate concept of what physical safety is and what emotional safety is. And we have to understand that when we ask clients, are you safe? Do you feel safe? Many people don't know what that feeling is, especially if someone grew up in an abusive household or in a place where violence was the norm in their community. They may not have a sense of having felt safe. I often talk to people who maybe I've been working with for a year or two who will have an awareness come to them suddenly and they'll say, you know what? I don't think I've ever felt safe. I don't think I even know what feeling safe is. Now, if I were to have asked that client in the beginning of our work together, are you safe? Do you feel safe? Are you in danger? Do you feel like you're in danger? They probably would have said, safe? Yeah, of course I'm safe. I'm not, no, there's no danger. But even when we ask people those kinds of questions, if they haven't had a sense of safety, they may not even know how unsafe they feel until they've been in a trusting therapeutic relationship with you long enough that they can say to themselves, wow, I'm noticing that I feel safe in this relationship and this feels so unfamiliar. I don't know if I've ever felt this before. That's what can help the person realize. And, you know, again, it's also hard to put that into words because that involves a lot of emotional intelligence, which is what Gretchen was talking about, teaching people emotional intelligence, just teaching them to understand what they're feeling, how to name it what it feels like, what it feels like in their bodies, which she didn't specifically say, but that's definitely an aspect of what I do in my work with clients. So another piece to consider with this is for any of you who are therapists, if you're working with anyone who is currently in an abusive relationship or is living in a home where there is abuse that is happening, or if they're living in a home where there was abuse that is no longer happening now, but no healing has ever happened around that abuse. For example, an adult child who lives with their parents and who grew up witnessing domestic violence, even though there's no physical violence happening anymore in the parent's relationship, the adult child is going to still feel like the child they were when they witnessed all of that domestic violence, unless they've done enough trauma therapy to heal from that, which if they have, they probably would not want to live in that house with their parents because they would be able to recognize that they feel so tense and on edge and hypervigilant in their bodies while living in the environment where that occurred that they can't tolerate it. And so they would say, this isn't really emotionally healthy for me to live here. So that's just one example. But also if you're working with 
children who are in, let's say they are living in a home where they have been physically, emotionally, verbally, or sexually abused. Or let's say it's a child who experienced that type of abuse and then was moved, removed from that environment and put into a home that was not abusive, but they haven't done their healing work yet. Just understand that for that person, most likely the trauma in their body is still alive and active as if it just happened or it's still happening now. And if a child is living in a family where they are currently being verbally, sexually, physically, or emotionally abused or neglected, you can do a lot of work with them, like Gretchen was saying, but it's not trauma processing work that you're doing with them because it's not, they're not in an emotionally safe enough environment to be able to do trauma processing. And trauma processing itself is something that you would do at a later stage of therapy. It's not something that you would do in the beginning of therapy. So, you know, we throw that word around trauma processing. Oh, I've processed all my trauma. Well, you know, for most of the clients that I'm working with, even if I've worked with them for three years, four years, we're not really processing the trauma. We are still working for them to create safety. And how we are doing that is for them to know their trauma responses, to notice when they're activated, to know what's activating them, to be able to regulate themselves when that happens or become regulated within the therapeutic relationship and then practice doing that on their own and being regulated within their own relationship, say with a partner, before we are doing trauma processing. Because there's a reason that your brain doesn't want to touch those traumatic memories because they're so painful. And yes, People are strong and resilient, but they also have to be resourced enough, including being emotionally safe and physically safe. So a child who is currently in an abusive family, if you're trying to do trauma processing with them, they become very vulnerable and then they go back home and they're in that abusive home. And that is very dangerous for them because then the next time the abuse happens, they are, their trauma is right out there super activated um, when they're trying to live and survive and overcome that they're being abused again. So it's not a safe place to do that type of trauma processing when someone is still living in an environment that is physically or emotionally unsafe for them. So another point that comes up for me in what Gretchen said, and I know that that was a very short little clip and I'm saying a whole lot about it, But that was why I wanted to have this additional episode is because there's so much content, so much richness in what she was saying. And I want to make sure that we really gain as much as possible from what she was talking about. So another piece that came up for me is the difference between working with people who are in crisis, doing trauma work, and working with people who are seeking to do the long-term healing work from the impact of repeated traumatic experiences. So what Gretchen was talking about in working with the people that had just escaped the war in Cambodia, she was helping them attain safety in the here and now, which is beginning to set the stage for them to be able to do long-term 
trauma healing work when they're ready, if they choose, and not everyone has to do that. But one cannot begin doing in-depth trauma work when they are dysregulated. And anybody who is living in traumatic experiences, near-death experiences, life-threatening experiences, potentially witnessing other people's death, people they loved, torture, you know, those types of horrible traumatic experiences, the person's nervous system is so hypervigilant that the only thing that they can do to start is to get their body back to being settled down enough and their nervous system settled down enough, not just for one moment or one 45 minute therapy session, but that they're living in a more calm, settled nervous system to allow them to, if they choose, then do longer term trauma therapy work. So the next thing I want to say about that is that for many of us trauma therapists or many of us therapists who have some training in trauma, but maybe not extensive training in trauma, I often see someone will say, I have a client who's very dissociative. What can I do with them to help? And other therapists will say, grounding techniques, use expressive arts, you know, and just throw out all these modalities and techniques and interventions. And it's like, it's not that simple that you just say, someone is dissociative. Let me throw a bunch of techniques at them to make them not be dissociating. Because again, for most people who've experienced trauma, dissociation happens. And with that, you know, even for many people who haven't experienced extreme traumatic, extreme trauma, dissociation happens, daydreaming, zoning out. But we're talking about where they kind of leave and they're not really here and they may not remember anything that happened during the session, or they may even um, switch into a different emotional state or part. So first of all, if that's happening with your client and you don't have extensive trauma training, no problem, but you need to get more training or consultation or supervision so you can help your client safely and stay within your scope of practice because that is complex work. And sometimes that happens and the client couldn't have told you it was going to happen because they didn't know. So you use the relationship and do the best you can to help them feel safe in that moment. But you don't just start pulling out a bunch of techniques and throwing out interventions that you heard about or read about if you haven't had proper training in them, because that's not going to be able to help your client enough. So I don't say this to be judging or shaming or criticizing any of us. I'm just saying that trauma work, especially with complex trauma, is a a very skilled type of therapy. And it's not something that I can just read an article about or talk to a friend, oh, what do you do in that situation? Oh, here's how I handle it. It's not that simple. You have to really get a lot of training and supervision and consultation. Everyone can be trauma therapists, but we also have to be skilled enough to know what is happening with our clients and what they're really presenting to us, which they don't always know to explain because how would they know if they're reacting to trauma and nobody's ever taught them about trauma, how do they know to tell you that this is what's happening? So I'll say a little bit more about that after um, going into the next part, which is where I want to 
play another clip for you. And this time, uh, Gretchen was talking about the three-phase model and the five-phase model that she developed of healing relational trauma. And as I mentioned, Judith Herman's work is where the three-phase model comes from. It's a, it's a widely accepted standard of how trauma therapy should be done. And again, I completely agree with it. But I like the way that Gretchen has added in a couple parts because that helps explain it in a way that people who are beginning trauma therapy can understand so they know what to expect. And also therapists can can recognize that pacing in trauma therapy is everything. We all want some magic technique or intervention that's going to immediately relieve the pain and discomfort that a person is experiencing. But there's just no way to do that like magic. It's a slow process. It takes a pace that is consistent with what that person needs. It's individualized. And I work with people for a long time. I mean, I have a lot of clients I've been working with for like four years and then you know, others three years, two years, everybody is going at their own pace. And the relationship that you build with the therapist where the client knows that they're safe in the session, which again, takes a long time when someone's experienced trauma to really feel that safety. And like I said, in my interview with Gretchen, I said that, yeah, you know, sure. I trust you. I know you're a therapist. You're not going to hurt me. I know you're, you know, I believe that you have a good reputation yeah, but that's a start. But when you have a a map of how the world works that began in childhood that you don't even know is there, but what that map says is that there's really no one who can be trusted. No one will ever help you. And you're on your own in this world. And you have to deal with everything yourself because nobody will understand you which is really common for people who've experienced childhood trauma, it takes a long time to even recognize those core beliefs that we develop. So, you know, again, I could tell somebody that they might have those beliefs when we start our work, but it's not going to resonate. They have to come to that awareness themselves. And when they realize it, it's a very powerful, impactful awareness. So, Um, You know, not everyone has to work with people for years, but, you know, let's call it what it is. If you're doing short-term work, helping people with coping skills, let them know that. If you're doing long-term trauma healing work, let people know that it's not a quick process. I mean, I think it would be very misleading for me to not let people know who come to work with me that we're going to be trying to get down to where this anxiety and depression that you've been living with your whole life started and make that go away instead of just giving you ways right now to ease your anxiety and, you know, which I will do. I help you with that too, but that's the short-term work. That's just to relieve your current discomfort. We want to make this problem change. We don't want you to have to feel this way forever. And that's what's transformational about long-term deep complex trauma therapy. Therapists, we've all had that moment 
You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. All right. So with all of that said, that's my big soapbox. Um, If you've ever met me, you've probably heard me say this a thousand times, but um, let me play for you the clip where Gretchen talks about the three phases versus the five phases and why she added two phases to Judith Herman's model. The people who did work before me. So Judith Herman, who had three phases Mm -hmm. and a number of other people. What I found with the three phases, so um, safety, um, morning, remembrance and morning and reconnection was that they didn't fit my experience as a client enough to explain it to other people. So the first phase of safety, which is, I think, an, an important goal for both client and therapist, the problem I found with that was that it didn't match. When people have a history of trauma, they often don't even know what the experience mm-hmm. of safety feels like. Yes, yes, so yes. I felt like calling that first phase safety, nobody people could work for years and still not feel it. Right. And while I think that is still part of the goal of, of the beginning of therapy um, or treatment of trauma, I called the first phase preparation because you don't have to have a specific feeling state. (laughs) You can be preparing whether you're anxious or whether you're calm or you, you can be doing the work in that phase. And I liken that to a Himalayan climb that you there are internal resources and external resources that have to be strengthened and bolstered before you can take on your history of trauma. And some of that is building the therapeutic relationship. Some of that is making sure that you have, you're in a safe place, that you have a place to live and you have food and you have a way to to maintain your life in some way. You should have some sort of meaningful activity, whether that's paid or unpaid, so that you feel connected to the present in a meaningful way. And that's your anchor rope so that when you head into the past, you don't get sucked in only there. You don't see your life as only the hurt part. So the preparation phase sets you up and sets uh, you up with a safe connection to a helper to head into the trauma. The second phase, so if once the first phase preparation goes along, Once you feel safe enough, often the second phase, which is unintegration, starts. So it's a planful coming apart. It's not disintegration. It's that you don't just fall apart, but you start taking apart some of the defenses or protections that you had up to survive your trauma, and your story starts coming out sometimes. But because of the way traumatic memory works, your story doesn't typically come out in a giant coherent narrative. It comes out in in different fragments. You have images, you have 
emotions, you have experiences, you may have interactions in the present that remind you of the past. And as they start coming out, you can move to the next, the third stage, which is identification. You start putting names and words to those experiences so that they start having more sentences around them. You can start to create, begin to create your story. And when all of the pieces come together in one place, that's the fourth stage, which is integration. And then, you know, if you have an emotion of an experience and a story of an experience and an image of an experience and a felt, a lived experience of that experience, and they all come together, you then have a scenario that then can become the past. It's a, it's a coherent narrative. And in that moment, the past becomes the past. And in integration, there's really two pieces. One is mourning, which is I, that really happened to me. I can see the past for what it is. And the second part is a new beginning where you start because you, it's now in the past, there's this open space of possibility of what might be in the future. And the future becomes possible because you're not living in your trauma entirely. And the last phase is consolidation, where you get to settle with some of the new learning that you're doing, some of the experience of of trying different things than you did that are different than the ones you used to survive. And it's my experience that both the preparation phase and the consolidation phase are sort of the ones left out of treatment. <laughs> we want to rush, you know, people mm-hmm. want to and get get to it. And they don't let the learning settle long enough. They want to move on to the next thing or they want to be out of there. Those two phases, I think, in terms of being a therapist, are the ones that require our discipline the most of saying, no, actually, we need to stay here. Or let's have another conversation about what worked about what we just did so we truly understand what supports we can build on and keep in place so that we can keep that healing going. Yeah, sometimes as therapists, we just are like performing with techniques week after week. Oh, this week, let's do this. And it's like, wait, where's the in between where, you know, it just settles in and, and you explore that. Okay, so that was a great explanation of Gretchen's five phase model. And I just want to give you some background on the three-stage model if you are not familiar with it from Judith Herman. You know, she talked about it briefly, but I just want to give you a little bit more information. And like I said, the book Trauma and Recovery, which came out in 1992, was definitely a seminal book on this um, when it came out. And Janina Fisher's Psychological AIDS for no psychoeducational aids for psychological trauma is a place where you can get this three-stage model um, written out so that you can see it and your client can see it or if you are the client you can look at it yourself and the the flip chart that Janina Fisher sells I believe it's intended for clinicians and you can get it at her website which I will link to but here's what the page in her flip chart about the three stages says. Just to go into a little bit more detail than what Gretchen said. Stage one is safety and stabilization, overcoming dysregula- <laughs> dysregulation. And it talks about um, 
recognizing common symptoms and understanding the meaning of overwhelming body sensations, intrusive emotions, and distorted cognitive schemas. And the achievement of safety and stability rests on the following tasks, establishing body safety, establishing a safe environment, and establishing emotional stability, which is the hardest part. Ability to calm the body, regulate impulses, self-soothe, manage, manage post-traumatic symptoms, and their triggers. So the goal of the stage is to create a safe and stable life in the here and now. People who have experienced childhood trauma and other types of relational traumas and war and torture and uh, those types of, and living in a violent environment, um, like in violent community can really, basically they don't want to think about it. And yet they're thinking about it all the time in the back of their minds, whether it's in their conscious awareness or not, memories and triggers are happening constantly. So I want to add that remembering trauma and reliving trauma are not the same thing. When someone is talking about their traumatic experiences and they're reliving the experience right then as if it's happening, that is not a healing experience. That is a re-traumatization for that person. So remembering the trauma is being able to stay grounded and present in the here and now and be able to tolerate experiencing feelings related to that past experience, but you know you're in the present. You know it's not happening now, and that's different from a flashback or being triggered. In fact, most of the time when we're triggered, we don't necessarily recognize it. And so one of the big things that happens during the phase one or stage one is beginning to recognize what being triggered feels like, what kinds of things are triggering you, what they're triggering, what, you know, what it relates to, and understanding the neuroscience of why this is happening for you and how trauma works in the brain. We call that psychoeducation about trauma. Because when it's happening, it feels totally out of control and you either don't know you're triggered and you're just reacting or you know that something's wrong, you don't feel right, and you don't know what it is, and people will say, I feel like I'm crazy. I don't know what's going on with myself. So that's very scary and feels very out of control, which is, again, also terrifying, like the experience of trauma. In stage two, coming to term with traumatic memories, the focus is to overcome the fear of traumatic memories so they can be integrated. So this is more where the processing may begin to happen. And one of the things about this three-phase model or three-stage model um, is that some say that you shouldn't do trauma processing work until stage three or phase three. And others say that that's what's happening in phase two or stage two. But another thing is that Even though they're called stage one, two, and three, as Gretchen points out, it's not a linear process. People may move between stage one, two, and three throughout the process, but you shouldn't be in three if you haven't done one. So I always tell my clients that stage one, phase one is the longest part of the therapy and the processing part is what you do when you're really 
you know, so far along in your treatment that many people may think, okay, I guess I'm finished. But if as long as the trauma is still there and it hasn't been processed or metabolized, not just spoken about, but actually physically processed using the body and bottom up methods, EMDR, sensory motor psychotherapy, um, yoga therapy, somatic experiencing, and some of the other body oriented methods, art therapy, um, when it's not so cognitive and more focused in the body. Those are some examples. Remembering is not recovering, she says about stage two. And this is from Janina Fisher, her flip book about Judith Herman's work. Then in stage three, integration and moving on. You can now begin to work on decreasing shame and alienation, developing a greater capacity for healthy attachment, and taking up personal and professional goals that reflect post-traumatic meaning-making. Your life becomes reconsolidated around a healthy present and a healed self, and the trauma feels farther away. Something that you know happened and you understand how it's impacted you, but is no longer intruding on your daily life. So some of that I was reading from her flip book, her flip chart, and some of it is my own interpretation or description of that. So I cannot remember who said this, but they say what was broken in relationship has to be healed in relationship. That's why the therapeutic relationship is such an important aspect of trauma therapy. And in, you know, crisis work with trauma, the connection that the, the crisis support person makes where they, their calm, safe presence lets the other person know that in that moment, they are safe and that the person is there to help. That's crucial. If the person who's seeking help does not feel safe enough to trust the helping professional, then it's going to interfere with the work. So just to emphasize the trauma that we experience lives in the body. As they say, the issues are in the tissues and it can't be processed until there's enough emotional safety and trust to settle down the nervous system. So the last thing I want to cover in this episode is I wanted to share with you a question um, which comes from one of my Patreon members. This question comes from a therapist who is a Patreon member. This, this question comes from Wolven Seward Katzmiller, MFT, SEP, a somatic experiencing practitioner. Hi, Laura. Great interview. Good to hear Dr. Schmelzer advocate more for preparation and consolidation, as well as for framing in advance with clients the coming to pieces without falling apart. As a somatic psychotherapist and somatic experiencing practitioner and EMDR therapist, I'm quite biased about this, but I'm curious how much other clinicians and clients currently believe in the importance of healing through our most primary obvious container and resource, the body, in terms of what gets carefully, mindfully accessed, renegotiated, and transformed. I personally think that trauma training and somatic training should be a minimum requirement for all therapists and sadly have met many therapists who simply don't want to go into quote unquote icky stuff and don't know what to do when it becomes a wordless physical experience. Thanks. Thanks, Wilvin, for your 
question slash comment. And, you know, I agree that trauma training should be a requirement in grad school. And it's not. (laughs) And it is covered in some graduate programs, but, you know, it's, it's so in depth, it could be something that someone could get a graduate degree in separately. There are many trauma certificate programs and some are short and some are long. Um, I have a trauma certificate from the Ference Institute that is about using expressive arts and body oriented techniques plus mindfulness and trauma therapy. And then, you know, I have beyond that plus over 250 hours of postgraduate training in sensory motor psychotherapy. And that isn't even the complete training or, you know, that's only through level two. There's another whole level, which I haven't even begun yet. So with that, I don't certainly know everything there is to know about trauma, not even close. So that just goes to show you how complex trauma training is and you know, but it's very serious and it's very important. So I guess the last thing I'll say is that if you are a trauma therapist or if you are a therapist who wants to learn more about trauma, please get as much training as you possibly can and get high quality training, experiential training, bottom up practices, because that's really crucial to working with survivors of relational trauma. And that includes attachment slash developmental trauma. I do offer consultation uh, one-on-one or in groups. If you are interested in working with me, feel free to get in touch with me at laura at bahealing.com. That's B-A-H-E-A-L-I-N-G.com. And I will post all the resources that I mentioned in this episode in the show notes, including the link to the full interview with Gretchen Schmelzer from two weeks ago and um, Janina Fisher's flip chart, Judith Herman's trauma and recovery book, all that good stuff. And the link to sensory motor psychotherapy training. If you want to get involved in that or sensory or somatic experiencing Lisa Ferrance's training. Um, I, I just want to help people become skilled trauma therapists because there's a huge need for this work. It's very important work and we need to be really skilled to be able to do it safely. So I'd love to know if you have any questions after listening to this episode, or if you have any comments, feel free to go to therapychatpodcast.com and you can leave me a message on the SpeakPipe app, which is on the website, or you can just email me at therapychat.podcast at gmail.com. I may not respond to every email, but I definitely read them all and I'm grateful for when you get in touch with me. Thanks so much. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. 
And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Just another reminder that if you'd like to become a member of Therapy Chat, supporting the podcast while receiving fun member perks and being able to communicate with me one-on-one, go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. If every subscriber donated just $1 per month, therapy chat would be able to keep going strong indefinitely. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.